topic which has many facets to it and has really become a litmus test for businesses to showcase their environmental codes, ethics. I mean, I think that one sentence probably demonstrates the multiple aspects of like ethical fashion. We often use the word ethical fashion as a very broad umbrella to house a lot of different social justice and human rights contentions. I think the one which pops up most frequently, at least recently, is workers' rights and labour rights. And I think that comes particularly so given recent news of countries like the US and Canada saying that China's production of cotton in Xinjiang has been taking place in detention camps and has I think Amnesty's done multiple reports on the human rights abuses which are happening in the detention camps to the Uyghur population. And as a result of that, H&M and other brands have been suggesting that they're going to take their cotton production out of Xinjiang, but in doing so have also stumbled across a new difficulty, which is we find it really hard to know where our cotton comes from and our supply chains are so intertwined that it's really hard for us to even track where our cotton and other materials are coming from and how they were produced. I think Apple has left the conversation um, (laughs) since they have not made a statement on the current situation in Xinjiang, which I think speaks volumes. I mean, you have Nike and H&M coming out talking about the issues and Apple has remained silent. And I think we're looking at Xinjiang now, but there's also you know, earlier reports, which we obviously shouldn't forget about the collapse of Rana Plaza, where other um, companies, I think Forever New at that time, were linked to Bangladesh production of clothing, where there were evidences of exits being shut so that labourers wouldn't leave, extended hours, and general awareness of things such as child labour. I think one of the things that I struggle with is when we're looking at things like labour, especially like Bangladesh, Uh, production often the call is to boycott and I don't actually know if that's helpful like if we boycott certain brands is that disproportionately affecting the laborers and who actually is affected by us refusing to buy that apparel I think it's just also important just to throw out there that according to the international labor office 168 million children are engaged in child labor and this is from like a 2012 report so not too sure about what the current updated statistics are, but I think, I think does the technique of boycott ever work though? Is it only the privilege that can afford to boycott? And then we haven't even started talking about the environmental effects of fast fashion in general. Like all of this is a moral mm. quandary around labour, but we haven't even looked at the environmental effects the Ellen MacArthur Foundation found that 1.5 Empire State buildings worth of clothes are burned slash put in landfill every day, or that 60% of clothing is disposed within a year 
of production. We buy clothes and we use them up so quickly. And I don't think necessarily we have an awareness of the water usage that that clothing produced. How is that clothing even disposed of when we chuck it into things like recycling or landfill? And it means that we have this massive consideration that we take when we try to buy clothing, but it doesn't even end there. Like we need to consider how it's disposed, how it's made. And what even is like recycled fashion? And is recycled fashion greenwashing? Oh, explain greenwashing, Finn. Greenwashing basically is when something has the image of being environmentally friendly or environmentally conscious. But in reality, it's not really that. So, for example, I was walking past the other day a particular global brand that produces jeans and denim. It begins with an L, but I won't say the name. And they were advertising that they now do a special type of jeans that does not use as much water. Now, the question is, is this a company being environmentally conscious or is it greenwashing? There's recently like these sustainable edits or recycled or conscious, like there's so many names for them. And you read the fine print and sometimes something is sustainable if the company donates 1% of its profits to environmentally conscious causes. And it really questions like what is the bar that we're setting for environmentally being conscious? And also now there's this thing of like op shopping and buying clothes which have been used before and that's been bumping up prices of secondhand clothing and that's also been disproportionately affecting certain people who might have been relying on that clothing. It feels a little bit like no matter what we do, we're engaging in something which is morally ambiguous. And spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched The Good Place yet, but I feel a little bit like Cheedy because no matter what I do, it, there are so many moral questions to ask and it feels like we're unintentionally always going to be doing something quote unquote wrong. And so how do we escape that situation? And why is it that we as an individual are faced with a situation where nothing that we do can be outside that system? Which we could spend another whole podcast episode talking about. Is it possible to be ethically pure? unless you're not top, not part of the top 1% of 1%, I think is very hard. Because at the end of the day, fast fashion, while it does come with its negatives, is also really affordable for some people. And in what you're saying, in the other case, like going into vintage stores and now op shops, those clothes that were there for people who needed them are now super expensive. And I mean, if you go to a local designer who might be advertising as a sustainable fashion like a shirt is going to cost upwards of 100 australian dollars i mean it is a lot of money for somebody to fork out for a shirt so chidi what do you think you know what there are some questions which i feel like only chidi could answer there are many times i've wished in my life that i was chidi not just because i get to end up with eleanor but <laughs> you know but i think this is probably a perfect segue into asking someone who probably knows a little bit more about this than us. So I guess we're moving, I guess, a little bit more into the sustainable fashion aspects and I guess how the collective and organisation operates as well. And one of the things that I was especially drawn to is you mentioned that you work with women's cooperatives, local artists, and I think a particularly 
I think highlighted process is that you collectively decide wages and hours and you don't renegotiate. So how did you decide from the launch of your collective that that's how you wanted to operate? We, we've been working for about two, three years now and we weren't, we were formerly Baby Fist and this is actually quite new. I would say it's in the last year. Um, and the reason that this has happened in the last year when it did is because of the pause that was allowed us by the global pandemic, right? So in that space, I finally had a moment to stop and assess my practices as they relate to my vision. And there was an undeniable gap. I started asking myself questions like, why wasn't I working with more women, more independent artisans and producers? I, I genuinely wasn't happy with what we were putting out. And so, Unfortunately, I felt like we had reached a place in which the creativity, the community and equity were not the foundation or they weren't the center of everything. And so I scrapped everything and I rebuilt. And that's why, you know, we we look so different. If you've been following us for a while, you know, we look so different than we did a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And so we work now with cooperatives, which collectively decide and set their own wages. And that means that we've shifted the design process from being a profit-based process to being an equity-based process. Like instead of designing a garment and saying, oh, we want this to be $60. So everything we do has to fit into that parameter. And that could mean that someone gets paid less. And that's not necessarily from my experience, but I'm just speaking kind of generally as to the design and production process of a lot of of the world around us. And an equity-based process, design process, puts the community first, puts the producer or the artisan first, and then you decide from there. So when you are focusing on fair wages and you're focusing on getting a fabric that you know is upcycled or is, is natural or whatever, and then you just kind of see where that goes. And you might end up with a product that's a little bit more expensive, but you're doing right by your community. Right. And so we've shifted into, into that sort of process. And I, I, it's not perfect and we're still coming a long way, but I do feel like we're more in tune with our vision than we've ever been before. And I guess like moving to the process of actually getting the material, um, I noticed that some of your products are from Gaza with Israel's illegal blockade on Gaza in the land, sea and air, which have effectively left it as an open air prison how does how do you get material from gaza and also does your activism differ from when you approach someone in the west bank to somebody in gaza this is a great question so there is there is this agreement called the ama agreement that i think was passed sometime in 2000 i could be wrong it's either 2007 or 2015 uh so don't quote me but this agreement was made between the PA and Israel as a means to start allowing goods to be exported from Gaza. Up until that point, there was just a complete blockade and nothing was really getting out, not even produce. And so this agreement had made it so that like a certain number of, of trucks could leave Gaza every month. Of course, let's say it's 100, I think. Israel is not holding up their end of the deal. Sometimes it's as little as like seven trucks on a monthly basis, but these trucks, are exporting to the West Bank finally, you know, produce, apparel, so on and so forth. And so this is actually how we're able to get our clothing out when we are manufacturing in factories. That's that's how we're able to do it. It's not a perfect process, of course, just because that's technically the agreement doesn't mean that's the that's the reality on the ground, right? So there are often situations, I remember one time we had a truck full of 
some jackets that we had made and it was sitting at the checkpoint for maybe two months because they just, Israelis had decided that they felt like closing the checkpoint for two months. And so nothing was getting in, let alone, not, not humans even, let alone garments. So that's part of it. And the activism, this is a difficult word. I don't want to say that I'm an activist. I don't necessarily even know what that means. And I'm hesitant to claim it, but it is a means for me to redefine the relationship, as I mentioned earlier, between like producer and customer, right? So it's it's so common for us to, I like this shirt, add to car, buy it it arrives in a week at my doorstep, right? The process of buying with us is a lot different. So you buy the item, add to cart, check out, and then, you know, you wait a week, you wait two weeks sometimes, and you're like, where's my garment? So you like email us, like, hey, where's my order? And we're like, okay, here's going on. <laughs> like, here is the checkpoint and got, you know, so, and customers are like, oh, oh my God. And that's so kind of radical to get an email from the brand alerting you to the political situation affecting the movement of the of the garment you're eventually going to put on your on your body right that why haven't we brought customers into the process like why do you guys you guys why do we have to stay blind to the process of the political and economic and social frameworks literally affecting our garments and the people who make them uh so the activism has no I did air quotes. You can't hear that. You know, the activism has, has just changed because I, when it comes to working with Gaza specifically, because I'm trying to actively just bring in customers into that process. I just wanted to link back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were talking about how this version of your organization is the closest to the vision that you think you've been. And I think sustainable fashion is sort of daunting for me because it does have so many elements in terms of it has the environment and you talk about the dyes that you use and you we're looking at workers' rights, we're looking at promoting and protecting culture and there's so many facets to it. So how does your collective go about that introspective process of how do you navigate and how do you interweave that into your work, all those different factors? That's a great question. And I'm not saying that we're perfect. And if anyone tells you that they're doing that, by the way, that's absolutely wrong. There's no way you can ever be 100% sure of, of everything from the way that the, the plants are harvested, the fibers are harvested, the way, how they're spun, how they're woven, how the fabric is created, who's, who's creating it, how much, like, it is immensely difficult to completely know all of all of those things. So I will I will point that out. And I'm not claiming to have all the answers, you know. I am claiming to be trying. And I want to point out that the onus shouldn't necessarily be on customers. That's not fair, particularly when the power isn't in your hands, particularly when trying to purchase fashion for you could mean, okay, well, I also have to pay rent and I also have groceries. And this idea of like voting with your dollar isn't necessarily um, a democratic idea because if you don't have the dollar, you're exempt from the votes. So I never want to put the onus on the customers and then anyone would be wrong in trying to make you feel that way. The pressure should be on these big companies that are that are changing the world and have pushed us to the, to the edge that we're on now, you know? Um, and for me, it's just doing my best, trying to understand, okay, how are the ways that we can be complicit in 
in something that could be hurting someone in our community or could be hurting our community? How are we trying to change it? And if we can't change it, how are we starting the conversation about how even being sustainable is kind of a luxury? Like these brands that are 100% sustainable, like ask where they're coming from, ask about the parameters within which they're working. You know, when you don't have control over fabric or what fabric or how to import it, there's only so far that you can be. So I want just to drive home the point that like sustainable fashion, quote unquote, in large part could even be like a global North privilege. I think it's so, and it's a conversation which needs to be had as well, because I know in Australia, one of the critiques that's been raised is there's this new thing of like op shopping and you buy clothes which are secondhand, which are meant to be, they're meant to be at lower prices so that it's more accessible, mm. but there's a market around buying secondhand clothing and it's inflating the price for people and it might be making that clothing now inaccessible. So I think it is yes. like a very valid critique to make that sustainable fashion is, isn't something that's affordable to everyone. And, and I think you have sort of answered this question um, but I might just ask it. No, no, no. Just the coming question, because I, you did sort of hint at it in your previous answer. But what are the challenges in being an organization in ensuring that your garments are accessible to the consumer, but also protecting the people and supporting the communities and artists that you're working with? That is a great question. I remember before I started working in in the industry that I do now. I used to be like, oh, that's cute top. Let me go see how much it is. And then it would be, you know, $500. And I would just be like, oh my gosh, you self-obsessed, you self-absorbed like brand. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. There's a reason. <laughs> There's a reason it's the, it's priced the way it is. And of course, like it's difficult to know that unless you're involved in like the, maybe the, the like the day-to-day -day aspect, but that's kind of where transparency comes in. And that's where brands need to be upfront about why they're pricing the way they're pricing and like who they're working with and who this money is going to in the end, right? I, I put the community, I put the word, I will never ever talk down the wage of someone creating a dress for us. For me, her welfare is above the customer always 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 community above customer and we i do try and offer things that are lower price points like we have t-shirts we have tote bags but it's not going to be perfect and i don't have the answer to this question i genuinely don't but i i will say my approach so far has been has been community over customer and i guess because there's all of these sort of different factors when coming in and looking at sustainable fashion what sort of things should people look out for when they're buying sustainable clothing? Is there like a specific icons or tags or even where it's made? That's a great question. I, I actually, there's no, I don't think there's like a rule book. Again, as I mentioned, it's, it's really difficult to actually know, you know, especially as we're seeing all of these big corporations coming out with like conscious collections, how conscious is it? But there's no way for you to know as a consumer. But one thing, if you have the time and the energy and the passion to do it, really try and support those smaller brands. Those brands that I follow and the brands that I'm discovering that are one, one person, two people, three people working with, let's say, with communities all over, like rooted, deeply rooted communities all over, putting them first, equity-centered design, and, and are bringing intersectionality into the conversation, into this, the design process, 
those are the people that are real. Those are the people to get behind, you know, like I want to give a quick shout out to example for Emeka Suits. Emeka Suits is this awesome company that they're very small as well, you know, and that's, that's kind of awesome. He designs everything from upcycled fabric that he finds in flea markets and sometimes dump sites, you know, those dump sites um, in Africa that we often see where our clothing that we donate or return ends up. You go through that and he creates these beautiful suits. Another great example is Zazi Vintage, the slum studio. You know, there's so many people that are working with deeply rooted communities doing the work and, and they're the ones to support. So I would just, I guess I would suggest trying to support those people. If you're, if you're really interested in supporting something sustainable, support small initiatives like that. Where can people find No Collective on social media? You can find us at, at NOL Collective on Instagram. We're actually only on Instagram, so follow us there. Amazing. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Amnesty International Australia, hosted by Vince Boulding and Denise Minow. Edited by Max Lowe and researched by Alec Muir, Alex Kelly and Billy Fett.